Exodus 4:27 to 5:14. This is God's word. The Lord said to Aaron, "Go into the wilderness to meet Moses." So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You should no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all of your tasks of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? The word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word, that you have given to us and revealed to us through your prophets like Moses. Will you teach us from it and lead us and guide us as we we grow in nearness and knowledge of you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many songs do you know that include the words, let my people go? Of course, the most well-known probably in our context and culture are some of the black spirituals, the hymns that were sung by uh, slaves in the American context with with an eye to the hope that God would deliver them from their physical bondage their place of slavery as God had done miraculously for the people of Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. But it's not just there, the camp songs, even one set to the tune of Louie Louie. You probably remember some of those and, and, and many more. Even one of the most memorable stories in the Jesus Storybook Bible is around this, this story of Moses and Pharaoh interaction and and Moses saying God says and Pharaoh 
breaking in and says, God who? I don't know this God. The story is one of the most familiar and most loved stories in all of Scripture. When we come to a story like this, one of the things that's most important in understanding how to interpret it, how to apply it in our lives, is to be able to identify with the right characters in the narrative. Jesus does this with his parables. He tells a story that life is like this. And it's important that we understand whether we're supposed to identify with the Pharisee kind of character or with the people of Israel. I don't know if you've noticed or you noticed it as this whole thing was read, but there are a number of responses from various groups of people in this narrative. It's not just Moses and his boldness going to Pharaoh, and it's not just Pharaoh and his hardness of heart and response, but you also have the people themselves, and some probably Ian and other people uh, who have been reading wonder why I break up the reading in such strange places some of the time, and even change it around, and it's, it's because well, for one thing, the, the chapter breaks and the headings in our Bibles are not there in the original text. But for another thing, the whole story fits together and the pieces of things interact in a way that oftentimes we lose when we just break the stories down in the same way all the time. And if we don't include the part from chapter 4 that Ian read, those last few verses, we might miss the response that the people have to Moses and Aaron when they go and show the signs to the people of Israel. Did you catch what those responses were in in chapter 4 at the end there? It says, Moses, uh, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. I'm in verse 30. And did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And not only that, but Moses and Aaron were called to go call the people together and show them these signs, but also to take the elders with them to go to Pharaoh. Well, the elders are there when Moses is and Aaron are showing the signs to the people. It says in verse 29, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And it says the people believed maybe the elders are included in that, maybe they're not. But then if you remember back to the story of, uh, of Moses at the burning bush and the interaction that God has with Moses. Do you remember what God instructed Moses to do? He said, go and gather the elders of the people and take the elders with you to Pharaoh and give him this message. But when we come to this part of the story in chapter 5, we have no mention of the elders going with Moses. Some people imagine that the elders initially were with him, but one by one kind of faded off into the distance as they neared the palace of Pharaoh. Maybe they didn't go at all. Maybe they had hesitations even in going and and visiting. There's one more group of people that's interestingly involved in this, and that is the, the foremen of the people. Did you catch what the foreman's response was? The foremen are kind of caught sandwiched in the middle of, of this whole situation. The people are the ones who are doing the work. The elders are responsible for the people. They're the people that the, the Israelites look to for leadership. 
But the foreman is still a different group of people. They're Israelites. The taskmasters are the Egyptians. They're the slave masters. The foremen are Israelites who have been recruited and presumably paid extra to make sure that the people do their work. What a hateful job. It reminds me of the tax collectors in Jesus' stories. You know, one of those tax collectors followed Jesus. Actually, more than one followed Jesus, but one becomes one of Jesus' disciples, and that is Levi, who becomes Matthew, who writes that, uh, that, that gospel account that we read from earlier for our confession of sin. The tax collectors were recruited by the Romans, locals typically recruited by the Romans, who would go and gather taxes from their people. And they knew, they knew that what they were doing was wrong. But the financial gain was significant. The position of prominence, even power, was significant. The foreman initially kind of seemed to be responding positively to Moses, but as soon as the tides turn and the task gets harder and Pharaoh gives them this punishment of now they have to go gather their own straw, the foreman, the foreman take their complaints to Moses. And of course, the account, account continues through the end of chapter 5, and we can see more of that interaction the next time we look, not next week, but the following week. Now, here's an important question for all of us. Of those five groups of people, Moses, Pharaoh, the people, the elders, and the foremen, as I describe those groups of people, who do you identify with in this whole story? Is there one group that you immediately say, I need to hear those words, the words that were spoken to those people? I, I can identify with the temptations or the sins of, of that group of people or that person. I need to be challenged to be more bold. I need to be confronted in my sin and my hardness of heart. I need to believe and trust God that he has come to deliver not just me but the people as a whole from this this bondage I have a position of responsibility but I find myself shrinking back in fear oftentimes I've identified more with the world and the definition the world brings of success and power and comfort than I have with the God who made me and the people that he's called to be his own. One of the most profound things I've heard in recent uh, weeks is a sermon by Zach Eswine, who was one of my homiletics professors in seminary, pastor, wonderful preacher, and he was teaching seminary students, primarily stem, seminary students, the difference between the prophetic voice and the voice of the sage. The voice of the sage speaks with wisdom. The voice of the prophet speaks with clarity and calling to certain action. Actually, both of them speak with clarity and calling to certain action, but the voice of the prophet typically comes and declares a stark warning. Repent, John the Baptist, a prophet, says 
and be baptized. Woe to you, Pharisees, Sadducees, Jesus says. You're on the path to hell even though you look like the most religious. But the voice of wisdom comes alongside those who are suffering or hurting. The voice of the sage is oftentimes the voice that Jesus uses, even though he does call woe. Oftentimes Jesus comes and he says, come to me. All you who weary and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. For my burden is light. My yoke is easy. The words that the people of Israel needed to hear and heard from Moses when he came and showed them those signs that God had given him were the voice that were coming from the prophet. Make no mistake, Moses is a prophet. Jesus is a prophet. But they knew the appropriate time and place to use the words of wisdom and to use the words of prophecy, of prophetic calling. Zach Eswine goes on to tell the story of a woman who came to him when he was young in the pastorate and he came and he preached the word of God boldly and he called the people to repent and she said, 30 years. Well, first he says she was much older than him but came and respected him and said, Pastor, for 30 years I wrestled with this question, does God love me? And now when I hear you preach and call me to repentance every Sunday, I don't hear, I don't hear the comforting words of assurance that eventually convinced me, yes, God loves me. She wasn't saying that there wasn't a role for the words of the prophet to call us out of our sin. She wasn't saying that his words weren't appropriate even for her, but she was saying that she also needed to hear the words of comfort and assurance that wisdom brings. Who do you identify with in this crowd? The people of Israel who need the words of comfort. The people of Egypt who needed a wake-up call. Particularly the, peop- the, the person of Pharaoh who needed to be moved by the power, not just of Moses and Aaron, but the power of God. Now, now it's easy to say, well, I, I want to be with the people. I need to hear the words of wisdom. But of course, Scripture doesn't let us off that easily and say, you're the victim and you're the power abuser. Scripture digs into the the condition, the true condition of the human heart. Jesus, when he's preaching that famous sermon on the mount in an outside setting that we looked at when we moved out here to the outside, digs into the human heart to, to uncover that even those of us who can identify most with the Israelites who are in bondage to our sin, who need to hear that word of comfort, also need to be challenged because none of us, none of us is completely innocent in our 
human condition, in our sinful human condition, even if we've been rescued by the blood of Jesus, even if we've been declared completely righteous by Christ and recognized as that we still have this battle going on inside of our heart that wages a war for our hearts, for our affections, tempting us. It says Jesus was tempted in every way like us, but he did not sin. But we continue to be tempted so often and oftentimes we do fall back into that sin. And so we need to hear the voice speaking to Pharaoh that says, carve away the hardness of your heart. Let the people go. Respond to the God who you say you don't know, but you know you know is out there, but you have no relationship with him. But we also need to be able to identify with the Israelites who need to hear the words of comfort, the challenge to the elders that says, come and speak with us to Pharaoh, for God is with us. The leaders of God's people need to have that kind of boldness, willingness to go with and trust the word of God, even in the face of oppression and persecution. The greatest challenge for us in our age of comfort, and I know that there are those who would speak against Christ and want to silence his church and there are cultural issues around us that continue to want to speak to us, but we still live in one of the most comfortable and religiously free time and places of all of human history. And the temptation for us, more than any other, other place, is really to identify with those elders of the people. And even the foremen who seem caught in the middle and to shrink back with the boldness that from the boldness that we have because we enjoy the comforts that come from the positions that we have or the little bit of extra income that we have. As we look at the next few weeks of this story of God demonstrating his power to the people of Israel, keep these five groups of people or five people, groups of people in mind and be able to identify with the challenges that plague each of those because some of each of those is at work in every one of our hearts. Some of each of those is at work in every one of our hearts. Before I go on to just summarize the, the reading, the story of this, I want to give you a little bit more on that, uh, that, that, mess, that word that uh, Zach Eswine, pastor, teacher, described the difference of the voice of the prophet and the sage. Because I think this is one of the most profound things that, that has rarely been vocalized from the prophet, at least from the teaching that I've heard, and never as clearly as he did. He drew our attention, or his audience's attention, to two passages. One is in Isaiah 5, 11 through 23. If you want to, you can turn there with me. You don't have to. And the other one is from Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. The description 
is the warning to God's people against the use of alcohol. A common temptation for many of us, even those who have never gone, uh, had to go into a, a rehab program, can identify with the temptation to look to alcohol for comfort and to quiet our our anxieties, even medicate. The prophet Isaiah warns against the use of alcohol using these words. He says, Woe to those who rise early in the morning. Notice that. He begins with the word woe. In verse 18, he again uses the word woe. Jesus uses this word to warn the, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the leaders. Woe to those that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people, go into exile. My people. This isn't just the, the Egyptians or, or, or the, the foreigners who are in the land of Israel during the time of Isaiah. My people, go into exile. For lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. The prophet speaks of a warning not just not to do something, but the consequences of doing that. It's the warning that the people of Nineveh needed to hear from Jonah. Woe to you if you don't recognize the danger of the road that you are on, the sin that you are committing, the things that you are doing against one another and ultimately against God. It impacts your knowledge. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. What a picture, draw sin as with cart ropes. Maybe you're in a position where you need to hear this stark warning like Pharaoh needed to hear. Woe. Whoa, watch out. This is going to end in disaster. Flee from it. Turn to God. Repent and be baptized. Let me just pause there because if you're here or listening online and you've never repented before God, never admitted that, God, I need you. I am trying to solve all of my problems and it's not working. I believe that you have the solutions. The call is that that I mentioned earlier, John the Baptist calling as one in the wilderness, repent and be baptized. Turn away from that sin. Woe to you on that path. And know that the God of not just wisdom and knowledge, but the God of forgiveness and intimacy will respond to that prayer. respond to that prayer and call you, draw you not just to a right knowledge, not just to a wiser, more successful life, but to an intimate relationship with him. And that, that, by the way, when Pharaoh says, I don't know him, we've seen that word multiple times, God knew their sufferings. God knows 
we, when we truly know God, it's not just a head knowledge. It is an intimate knowledge of God in relationship. The word know has that deep connotation, especially in the Hebrew language, that to know somebody is even used of a husband and wife having marital relationship with one another. To know one another is to have intimate relationship. And when we have that intimate relationship, God comes and he speaks with a different tone. Sometimes we still need to hear the woe, but hear the tone of Proverbs 23 that contrasts it as the tone of the sage, the, the wisdom. It flips the language. It asks the question, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Can you identify with this? This, by the way, is the language that I tend to try to use in my preaching most of the time. I don't always succeed at it when I need to, and sometimes I fail to use prophetic language when I should. But if you are in Christ, if you have been forgiven by Christ and are in the family of God but still struggling with sin, most often the language is this sage language that comes to you and asks the probing questions. (coughs) What? What is not working right now for you? What is too hard to carry? What in your life is burdening you, bogging you down. We're going to get to that in just a minute. We're just going to look at the passage itself a little bit more briefly today because one of the striking things in this is that when the people respond with faith, their life doesn't get easier. But the voice of wisdom says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cease? Who has redness of eyes? Just identify with those things. It doesn't even mention the subject that he's going to get into. Who has these things? Do Do you have this woe, this sorrow, this strife in your life? Complaining. Are you prone to complaining? Are there wounds that... That just keep coming. They seem to have no purpose at all. Are there symptoms out there? Redness of eye. Are you tired? Are you worn down? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wines. Not to say that those things only come to those who have problems with alcohol, but those who tarry long over these things will bring not just uh, not just these, but many other problems. 31, do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. The voice of wisdom, the sage, calls to those 
who know what wisdom is and it directs our hearts to desire something else. And with that, we can look now a little bit more specifically to the story at hand, to the words that Moses speaks to Pharaoh, remembering that he spoke other words to the people of Israel first. And remembering that the words that God speaks to the people of Israel call them to repentance. In no way are they free from the temptations of others around. But the words to God's people oftentimes are more comforting. Or what's the first thing we can look at? The first thing is that God delivers us from sin in the same way that God delivered the people from the physical bondage. The slavery to sin that we experience is the same as the actual slavery that the people of of Israel experienced at the hand of Pharaoh to build his projects. And we need this stark reminder that the sin that continues in our lives that we sometimes harbor and even enjoy for some season will have a devastating impact on our lives. Oftentimes the sin in our lives is like the proverbial frog in the, in, in the boiling pot who doesn't even realize the, uh, the water is boiling until it's too late. You know this story that supposedly if you put a frog in a pot of water and it's content enough not to jump out right away you start to warm the water and the frog gets comfortable in the warming water but then once it starts to boil it kills him without realizing that he needed to jump away the people of israel had gone to egypt originally because joseph was sent into slavery himself down there but joseph ends up delivering not just the people of Egypt by rescuing them from famine. He delivers the whole people of Israel by bringing his brothers and his family down when they experience famine. And so they enjoy favor in Pharaoh's household for some season, but gradually over the course of a few hundred years, that comfort turns into slavery. Make no mistake, the effects of sin in our lives lead us to slavery and oftentimes on a slow road that is gradually increasing in temperature, bringing the pot to boil, and we don't even know it. And we find ourselves in this slavery to the sin that we thought was an exercise of our freedom. Maybe you find yourself there and you don't know what to do. Maybe you find yourself there and you don't know the forgiveness that God has worked through Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and he explains, and the Apostle Paul explains, for freedom Christ has set you free, released you from the bondage of this slavery. All of us were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. freedom that Christ wins for us is a freedom for that. But it's not just that. And we've pointed out this point that it is an actual, this is the second thing, it is an actual freedom from the bondage of actual slavery for the people of Egypt. And like I said earlier, we experience some of the freedoms, the greatest freedoms in all of human history, but many around the world, even today, find themselves in bondage to others, either economic bondage or actual slavery. 
or systems that prevent them from hearing the truth of the gospel and experiencing the freedom to worship God. And our call as the people of God is to pursue not just our own righteousness and our own freedom, but to pursue the good for others in, 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 in helping wherever we're, we're called to and wherever we can to bring freedom for those who are experiencing physical oppression. God is concerned for the justice of his world. And he's put authorities in place to pursue that justice. He reminds them that they, like Pharaoh, are one who is under authority, whether they recognize it or not. If you are an official or even a, a, a boss at, at a job with those under authority, recognize that God has put you there as a servant of him and his people to guide, direct, rightly for the good of God and for the good of the people. And maybe you need to hear these words that were spoken to Pharaoh because you've entered into some type of practice that is oppressing others, that is using others for your gain. You are stealing other people's glory when they do something well. You take the, 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 uh, the, the glory for yourself when they do something wrong. You're all too quick to make sure that they get the blame. And even when you do something wrong, you're putting the blame on somebody else so that you don't have to be responsible. This, by the way, is so prevalent in the marketplace in America today, in the system that we have, that we need to call this out as a sin along the lines of what Pharaoh is doing. It causes all kinds of problems in the workplace. It is a, a place where we... It is a place where we as Christians can shine a bright light into the world around us and say, I'm not going to enter into that practice. Even if it costs me my job, I am going to lead in a way that benefits the people around me. I'm going to take responsibility when things go wrong under my authority. I'm going to do this for the benefit of others first and not for my benefit. Well, that's not to say that benefit doesn't come from doing the right thing. But notice, notice what happens in the story here. When they do the right thing, Pharaoh hardens not just his heart, but their labor. And this is the third point. It begs the question, is God promising prosperity for us when we follow him? And what do we do when, when we follow God, things get worse? There's a whole section in Barnes and Noble that is called faith, that is promoting the idea that if you follow God, your life will go much better. In fact, it's a means to an end that when you follow God, you will get this response. And the story that we see today is a clear example that that does not always happen. Now, in general, when a fair economy and when a just system is set up, prosperity does result in the long run. One of my favorite quotes, Benjamin Franklin recently read a biography of him, is that religion begat prosperity and 
the daughter devoured the mother. Takes a minute to digest. Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devoured the mother. He saw this. He experienced it. The life of faith of the Puritans in the New England area and other Christians around the the country when the nation was being formed. There were definitely problems and abuses of power and difficulties in that time, but by and large they set up a, a fair and just system because they knew the type of oppression that they had experienced by from King George and other rulers before him. But not in this story. In this story, when... Moses follows God. Maybe he was a little bit timid going in there. Maybe he was bold. We don't really know. He says the words that God gave him to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds just the way God told Moses he would. Now, if you remember back to chapter 3 and 4, Moses with God, God says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will not let them go until I show these great signs. So this is all part... This is all part of the drama that's going to unfold, that uh, that Pharaoh hardens his own heart and God hardens his heart. We need to always remember that these two things are going on at the same time, not uh, apart from one another. And, and out of this will come this dramatic deliverance of God for, for his people that we need to see as a beautiful picture of the power of God over the most powerful of enemies. Because Pharaoh wasn't the most powerful enemy and still is not the most powerful enemy of the people of God that belongs to Satan. Satan is the accuser, the spiritual demon in charge of all evil spiritual demons, and he is far more powerful than Pharaoh, as is the power of sin itself more powerful than the power of Pharaoh. And God is saying through this mighty act of deliverance where he brings these ten plagues and eventually delivers the people through the Red Sea, parting the sea, defeating Pharaoh's army, He's saying, I can do this in spades. I can do this against any enemy that I choose to, and there is a greater enemy out there. And he's even saying to the people of Israel, I will do this even though it seems like it's impossible for it to be done. When we come to the Christian life and decide to follow the God who has made us, we should expect opposition. We should expect that others around us will be angry about that. We should expect that if we are doing the right thing, the sin of others will be reflected by our life, not in a self-righteous kind of way, but when they see us making the right decisions, it can fix other people's heart. It's a powerful conviction of a heart when a friend who you know has been prone to all the things that you've done changes his or her behavior. And that testimony, 
That testimony in the face of persecution is something that Jesus was teaching his disciples over and over through his three years of ministry with them and said right at the beginning when he preaches that Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. You should expect it. For in that you will receive your reward, but also through that witness, many others will come to believe. In the time before that uh, time of Benjamin Franklin, still some uh, many decades uh, before, the Church of England and uh, the Catholic Church and, and all those went through massive upheaval and the Puritans there. And one of the most powerful witnesses to the people were the martyrs who died because of their faith, their unwillingness to compromise their faith even at the king's demand or the queen's demand. One of the stories you probably most of you know that our dog is named Ridley. Some of you know that it's named, he's named, she's named after Nicholas Ridley, uh, who famously was burned at the stake alongside of his companion, fellow minister, uh, Latimer, Hugh Latimer. And as the fires were beginning to catch, but they weren't catching entirely and not fast, and so they were experiencing awful pain, Ridley cries out. Ridley cries out in this pain and agony, and he needs the help of his friend Latimer, who's quoting from one of the early church fathers a long time before him, who says, play the man. In other words, be strong in your faith. Be strong in your faith. For today, we will light such a candle in England, or that all England shall see. Their physical bodies would be a candle of witness to the persecution they endure for many to see and believe and sure Surely their, their story was written in a, a collection of Book of Martyrs. It was told far and wide. It's still told to this day. And their faithfulness stands as a testimony to others. The candle of their bodies, more specifically their faith, stands as a testimony to others. Because the hope of the Israelites, like the hope we have at this time, is that certain things have been accomplished. The promise has been done in our situation. The promise has been made. Christ has fulfilled that promise in dying for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and rising, raising from the dead so that we would be assured of that eternal salvation. But there is still a now aspect to that, but a not yet aspect. We still long for the time when we will be free entirely from this, this battle with sin, from the suffering and even the physical ailments that continue to plague us. And so like the Israelites enduring this suffering, we're called to endure for something greater because we know that we will be delivered through the sea and into the promised land, and that is the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth where there is no sin, no death, 
And so we need to have this story to remind us that God is faithful and powerful to fulfill his promises. To give us a very tangible picture of what is sometimes easy to lose sight of in this life. The last thing I'll mention, the fourth point is, how do we do that now? And one of the most important aspects of this is our worship of God. And we've talked about these three themes of, of physical release from slavery, the importance of worship in Exodus that he leads uh, us to. The second half of the book of, is entirely about worship and how central worship is in our lives. And then also about the affection of the heart. But, but notice what, what Moses says, let my people go so that we can go into the wilderness and hold a feast, a festival, a worship service. They were going to slaughter animals as sacrifices as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had before them, as God had instructed. They're going to sacrifice these animals because that was a part of worship at the time because worship in God's economy we had to be understood in terms of forgiveness, pardon, redemption, atonement for sin. And when that sin was atoned for, the people could enter into God's presence. There needed to be a cleansing of the people, all kinds of these pictures. And so that's what they were going out into the wilderness to do. But if we fail to worship God, if they fail to worship God, their hearts gradually became cold as well. They forgot that this was necessary to enter into God's presence. Now for them, there was still some question of this. God hadn't really revealed himself in all that type of detail that he's going to for Moses. But we see the first example of every time Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, there's a so that, in order that they might worship God. And the simple application for us as followers of God is the importance of our worship together and why we do what we do every Sunday, why we include a confession of sin and, and God's assurance of his forgiveness every Sunday is because that pattern was set up for the people in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and, and the regular festivals that were held. Not just the annual festivals or the three times a year festivals, but from the beginning, God says, I'm going to set up this day of rest. This day of rest, which for them was Saturday, it becomes Sunday in the New Testament era. This day of rest on Saturday, where the people would rest from their burdens because they knew what true burdens were. They had experienced overworking. And the worship for them would have served as a reminder, just as it is for us, that our temptation is to find satisfaction, comfort, some type of uh, anesthetizing of the pain in our life through our work. Now, this can happen in, a many, in many different ways. One way is just to be a workaholic and find all kinds of success in our lives through our work and, and the things that we do, and we, we satisfy ourselves by that. The poignant question raised by many people is simply, 
how much is enough? If you're struggling with that, how much is enough? And the answer, the most profound answer, I think uh, Warren Buffett, maybe some others have given this quote, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If you're finding, trying to find your satisfaction in those places, the answer, just a little bit more, is never going to be enough. The, the, but the, there's, there's also a religious answer to this. If you're trying to find your satisfaction and your comfort in the works, the good works that you do before God, before others, the same question be, can be posed. How much is enough? And the answer is the same. It's always going to be just a little bit more. It's always going to be just a little bit more. And the principle of Sabbath that, that God brings to his people through Moses, through this whole story, is that if you don't find your rest from your labors, either in the first set type of people or the second type of people, you will always need a little bit more, but you need to find your rest in God. And the only way that you will find your rest in God is if you put your worship in him. It doesn't call us away from our work. It engages us in our work in a new and meaningful way that we described earlier. It doesn't call us away from doing good works for others. It transforms our hearts so that we're doing them out of the right motives. It doesn't change a lot of the things that we do. It changes the reasons that we do them. And it makes them so that they're burdens that we can carry. Because God carries the burdens we can't. And so I'll close with this question. Are you feeling these burdens that are overwhelming to you that you just can't carry anymore? And do you need to hear this word of God? Come and worship me. For in worship of God is true rest. That's the gospel. We'll continue to look at this in a couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have called us to this place that we would worship you this morning and that you have provided for that in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which we celebrate this morning in the celebration of this Lord's Supper. For Jesus died the death that we should have died and lived the life that we should have lived so that we can have life in you. Father, you have provided all of these things. Will you feed us now and satisfy and nourish our spirits? In Jesus' name, amen. Before I do this, I, I didn't get bread and juice for you guys. Will you go ahead and get it while I say this? On the night when Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples... There was a feast laid before him. It was the Passover feast. It included a lamb that had been sacrificed. And he explained that he, from that point forward, would take the place of the lamb. But he took ordinary bread and ordinary wine. And he set them aside from the rest of the meal. And he explained that this sacrament, this thing to do in remembrance of him was necessary for us to testify that we believe in Jesus and that he has done what he said he would do. The bread, he explained, corresponds with his body that would be broken on the cross for our sins. And the wine symbolizes his blood 
sinless blood. The life is in the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin. The, the priest would sprinkle the people with blood as a sign of the cleansing of the blood of a perfect bull or ram that would bring healing to the people. But even that fell short. It was only a, a pointer, a sign of the true sacrifice that we needed, which was Jesus Christ. No lamb is here before us, but we have this bread and the wine. And the invitation is for all who believe. If you believe in a simple testimony that Jesus has died for your sins, and in that you find forgiveness, and he is the king over all of creation, God himself, who took on a human body and still lives in that human body, has been uh, raised from the dead. Then to do this is to bring nourishment. We've already confessed our sins. This is a reminder of the intimacy we have with God now. If you're here searching, wondering, is this good and true? Don't bear false witness. Find out. Seek it out. Find the answers. Here. Read the Bible. There's a book on the back table called... Um, Uh, The Prodigal God that I highly recommend. There's also a children's story Bible that is beautiful for adults and children. You're welcome to take those with you or just uh, take a picture and order them uh, online yourself. Search it out. Find him. He is good. Jesus prayed before they ate the meal, and so we will pray and give thanks. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have called us into this place. And as Jesus distributed bread to many thousands who were hungry on a hillside preaching a sermon, he also gives us what we need here. That you have fed us, that you fed, fed us with your word, with the fellowship we experience here. Now also with this reminder, this tangible sign and seal that you are here with us. Be blessed to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus took the bread and he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat each one of you in remembrance of me. And this wine represents... My blood, which is the blood of the eternal covenant given for you, take and drink, each of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus, we have come here as your brothers and sisters to worship you and go away with the reminder that you have called us into your family and have eaten with us. And that you go with us. Will you send us out now with this blessing that we would be faithful witness, bold, compassionate, wise, prophetic to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.